So I have always been fascinated with eyes. And not in the normal way where you just think they're beautiful, but actually the physical eyeball. Um, they're these complex, incredible, little miraculous organisms. And basically the eyes could almost be an organism on their own. And, and these organs that facilitate vision actually do so much more. They, they have several um, photo response uh, systems that they can do that actually have nothing to do with vision. And so I want you to love eyes as much as me. And so we're going to do a little project today. So um, pass around these papers if you have them. Um, you should have them on your table. And turn it over to the side that just has the plus and the dot. Does anybody know what this is? This is a blind spot test. So um, what I want you to do is hold the paper in your left hand. Take your right hand and cover your left eye like this, okay? And then look at the dot. And as you move it closer, as you're staring at the dot and you move it closer or farther away, you'll see that the plus disappears. Do you see it? Some saw it here. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Okay, and if you did it really quickly, then you can turn it over and try the next three. Do the exact same thing. Because you'll hit the blind spot and it'll disappear. And then as you keep moving it closer, it'll come back. Okay. So, now that you've all attempted it, I'm going to ask you to take your papers and lay them back on the table and give me both of your eyes, please. Because you, so you see, we all have this blind spot. Even if it didn't work for you, I promise you have a blind spot. Um, you see how this works? What gives you this blind spot? Actually, we all have two blind spots because we have two eyes. Um, but what gives you this blind spot is that the back of the eye is lined um, by the retina. And if you look, you see in the retina there are rods and cones, and those rods and cones facilitate your vision. Those are what help you see, okay? Coming into the back of the eye is an optic nerve. Do you see it up there on the top left? Where the optic nerve comes in, what that nerve does is it connects the eyeball to the brain. Now, in that little spot where the optic nerve comes in, there are no rods and cones in that area. And so when that plus is coming in line with your optic nerve, you don't see it. But instead, it was just white, right? It wasn't like a black spot where there was no vision. It turned white. Because what your brain does is it doesn't leave this blind spot. Your brain takes kind of an average of everything around it and then guesses what is supposed to be in that spot. And so that's why... I when you have time on your own after today, um, you should look at the ones with the dots and the different colors because you'll see your brain changes. It compensates for what is missing. And what's crazy is we all have this, and so why don't we ever notice it? I mean, it, we, our brain knows it, but, but our brain compensates for us. And you see, what's crazy is this is not the only blind spot we have, right? You know where I'm going. We all have this blind spot in our hearts, too. You see, we're called as Christians to walk like and talk like Jesus, to love others with this unconditional, unabashed love. But unfortunately, we all have 
circumstances and brokenness and, and problems and filters that tell us how we see other people and they often keep us from loving in the way that we should love. And you know, Peter had this blind spot. It caught him off guard. He didn't realize it. I, I think probably his brain had compensated for it too. And so we're going to talk about his blind spot. So just to review the text and everything... Um, that you studied this week. I'm not going to read through it all, but we'll just do a quick recap. Um, You know, Peter was a devout Jew, and he had walked with Jesus. He knew of Jesus' teachings. Jesus called him the cornerstone of the church. And Peter was loyal to Jesus, and he loved Jesus, and he followed Jesus. But God was not done with Peter's heart. There was still just a little more work to do. And so we find him on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house. And he is praying and he sees this vision, right? And God tells him, basically God, a voice, tells him three times to eat something that the Jews would have considered not just unclean, but almost offensive. And Peter's like, Lord, I would never do that. And he is offended, but this, this voice tells him, What God has called clean, do not call common. Meanwhile, Cornelius is down in Caesarea, and Cornelius is praying, and he has a vision at the same time. And Cornelius was a Roman centurion, and he was a military man of the Italian cohort in Caesarea. And so Caesarea is second only to Jerusalem, as far as being one of the grandest cities of this time. It was a business center. It was on the coast, and so it was a major port on the Mediterranean. It was just a few miles north of Jerusalem. And the thing about a major port and a major business center is it was often pretty corrupt. And Caesarea was known for their worship of false gods and and their vile behavior. And... It was made of mostly half Jews and half Gentiles. And so you can imagine the conflict that happened there all the time. And so Cornelius is, you know, he's a Roman and he's a Gentile, but he's obviously a little different. There is something he has picked up about the Jews. There's something he admires about the Jews. And so he is praying to their God. He's giving alms, offerings, just like they would. And then per God's direction, Cornelius sends three messengers to Peter in Joppa and um, says to collect Peter and bring him to this literal God-forsaken town. And so now it's Peter's move. And so here is Peter on the roof praying. And when he saw these three Gentile men at the gate, I can only imagine what he was thinking. Because you see, the Jews and the Gentiles, they had a very separate relationships. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs. The Gentiles called the Jews self-righteous snobs. Their hatred ran far and it ran deep. They did not associate. And so even when we talk about the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees, usually as as Jesus-believing Christians, we don't talk about them in this positive light, right? They're always stuck to the law. And how did they get to this place? How did those God-fearing Jewish nation get to the place where they hated Gentiles? I'll say that God took them there. 
You know, God, back when God was talking to Abraham, he called them a chosen race and a chosen people. He said that they were going to be set apart for his purpose. He commanded them not to assimilate with the Gentiles when they were in the promised land. He kept them separate. He gave them the law. He gave them the Messiah. And so they were accustomed to being chosen. But after a while, they became um, less about obeying God and seeing his will and more about doing whatever it took on their own to keep themselves righteous. And considering that the Gentiles were unclean, they stuck to that. And so Peter, Peter was a good Jew. And by all accounts, he had done most of, most of what Jesus had asked him. But there was still a place in his heart that needed work because Peter had a blind spot. And his blind spot was Cornelius and the rest of the Gentiles. You see, God was speaking to Peter about food. He was. We know that. He, he showed him pictures of this food. And God had to tell Peter three times. I don't know if Peter was ready to accept it. And so God is telling him three times. And then as God's telling him, these three men arrive at his gate and God was talking about food, but then the three men arrived at the gate and unclean, oh, unclean. God, 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 you just hear Peter. Okay, food is one thing, God, but them? You're, you're, you want me to associate with them, these Sabbath-working pork eaters? Peter had this blind spot that probably he just hadn't been aware of until this point. And like Peter, I think we all have blind spots. And I'll be the first to admit that I, I am not exempt. It was um, when I was working in corporate before I came here. Uh, I had started a job at a new company and um, was having a great time, loved it. And we found out that we were hiring someone new. And uh, we were going to work closely together me and the new girl. And now before she came on, you know, thanks to the internet, we can find out whatever we want. Um, we weren't stalking, don't say that. Um, uh, we found out that she was a pole dancing instructor. I hear all y'all. And so I made a um, little judgment because, I mean, if she's instructing, then she's leading people to do this. And, and so when she started, um, you know, I was, I was really nice and loving and, um, and got to know her. But um, I didn't associate too closely because my coworkers knew that I was a Christian. And what would they think if, if I got into this deep relationship with this pole dancing instructor? And so we would go to lunch, and we would work on projects together, but we were never um, really close, you know, because that would not have been right. And so um, I left that job later on, and after I left that job, she sent me this email. And it was the most tender, precious note that I had ever received. And she was thanking me for the way that I lived my life, she was saying that she wished she had gotten to know me better and that she, too, had left the company. 
Now, come to find out, the reason she was a pole dancing instructor is because um, she was training people to perform in performances with Cirque du Soleil. Maybe you've heard of them. They're incredible, talented athletes. And she quit her job because, um, at the company we worked for because it didn't allow her enough time to go to her volunteer job. And so she quit her job to be a yoga and Pilates instructor and um, dedicated more time to what she loved doing as a volunteer, which was taking elderly and people with special needs to equestrian training, equestrian therapy. And she would transport them. And in her spare time, she was becoming an equestrian therapist. Y'all, her heart was much bigger than mine. She was giving alms, just like Cornelius, and she was looking for something more. But my blind spot of not even getting to know her caused me to miss this incredible opportunity. I worked with her a year and missed this opportunity. Is there someone that you might be calling unclean? You know, there's um, another way to describe it. And um, you have seen and heard us talk about this book, Disunity in Christ, that um, we're holding a book discussion soon. And, and Christina Cleveland, um, she is a hilarious and um, very talented author. And she calls it... Uh, when we call Christians or, or when we have opinions about other Christians, we call them right Christians and wrong Christians. And so I just want to share with you um, some of her thoughts after she first became a Christian and began growing in Christ. She says, over time, when I met other Christians, I found, I found myself asking them what church they attended. Some answers were more acceptable than others. The way I saw it, there were two types of Christians, the wrong kind of Christian and the right kind of Christian. It was that simple. Wrong Christian was not a thinker. He hadn't read a book in the previous two years and had the limited vocabulary to prove it. Although, come to think of it, he did read a book a few uh, years back about a woman's rightful place in the home. He voted based on one or two issues, abortion and homosexuality, two issues that Jesus didn't even mention once, mind you. Wrong Christians lacked cross-cultural sensitivity and somehow managed to avoid spending quality time with anyone who did not share his race and culture. He voted Republican, 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 and he was a he. Seriously, did you expect wrong Christian to be a woman? <laughs> Shaw. Curiously, right Christian was a lot more like me. While driving her Prius en route to the farmer's market, she self-righteously zipped past wrong Christian's lumbering SUV, blithely unaware of the fact that Prius owners and farmer's market shoppers, who are basically the same, are consumers, just like everyone else. She was a woman of the world. She was well-traveled and able to thrive in any cultural setting. She boasted of the ethnic diversity of her friend group. She hopped onto the poverty, social justice, and environmental bandwagons, as well as any other bandwagons that were in vogue at the time. She wasn't bound by political party affiliation. Rather, she thought for herself and voted independently. In other words, she voted Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. All of these characteristics and many, many more made her right Christian. So it all began with two labels, right Christian and wrong Christian. 
The funny thing is, the more I talk with people about these labels, the more I realize that many of us carry our own descriptions of right Christian and wrong Christian. Perhaps in your opinion, my right Christian is your wrong Christian, and my wrong Christian is your right Christian, or maybe your wrong Christian and right Christian are totally different birds. And she goes on to bring it a little more home for us. She says, maybe your wrong Christian attends a church that doesn't allow women in leadership. Maybe your wrong Christian doesn't speak English. Is in a college sorority. (laughs) Drives a Hummer. Promotes reformed theology. Was baptized as an infant. Maybe she dresses like she's in a music video. Maybe wrong Christian is pro-choice or pro-Israel. Wrong Christian voted for Trump or didn't vote for Trump. You see, our opinions of wrong Christians can be so strong that we not only avoid, but we actively condemn Maybe, maybe you don't identify with any of this because you don't associate with wrong Christians. They are so far outside your right Christian circle that you didn't know they existed. Maybe those labels have made other Christians a target of your criticism and basically almost seem dead to you. You know, one day I realized that I had done that very thing. I hadn't called it that, but I um, was raised in a Southern Baptist church, and uh, there are many things about my upbringing that I am very proud of. Um, My great-great-grandmother was a charter member of our church when it was started in 1929 in a little white house, and my family has been members of that church ever since. And, you know, as um, Baptists... We believe that uh, baptism does not save you, but it is an act of obedience and an outward expression of uh, your faith in Christ. So, fast forward to 2007 when I'm attending IBC. And I met this handsome, tall, blonde Dutchman. And he was baptized as an infant. (laughs) He attended confirmation classes at his church. And for them, infant baptism was likened to, uh, to circumcision in Israel. Whereas believing parents would take their children and set them apart for God. And once um, they understand and had faith in Christ, then they would be brought before the church and be confirmed before the church. Um, it seemed backwards to me. Um, and by backwards, I, I mean wrong, really. <laughs> Now, mind you, as the Baptist girl in a small town, I had many opinions about the church two blocks away, yes, two blocks away, who did those same confirmation classes. For years, meaning my entire life, they were very much wrong Christians. And I felt like um, that when we got to heaven, God would have a place for the Baptist and those who knew the moment they accepted Christ. And we would be here. And the others who just weren't sure and they did those classes and did it backwards and wrong would be there. But there was a problem. I was starting to fall in love with this tall blonde Dutchman. 
You see, I didn't doubt that Joel was a Christian um, who believed in Christ, but this baptism confirmation class really threw me for a loop. And so I um, sat down with my mentor at the time and asked for her wisdom. And in her great wisdom, she told me a story. And she said, Amy, you and Joel are both in Chicago. Metaphorically, of course, because we were living here, but she said, you're in Chicago. To get to Chicago, Joel flew on an airplane to Chicago, and you drove a car to Chicago. Amy, you knew the moment you crossed into Chicago because you saw the city limits sign, and you saw Chicago, and you knew you were there. For Joel, Joel was in the airplane, and so he didn't know the exact moment that he crossed into the Chicago airspace. But as soon as he landed, he looked around and he knew that he was in Chicago. And she said, Amy, the fact is, you're both in Chicago. (laughs) And she said, that's what matters to God. You see, what matters to him is that we both believed that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, died and was buried and was raised to make both me and Joel clean and right. (laughs) And she was right. And I'm so glad she told me that story because two months later when he proposed, I felt free to say yes. (laughs) But you know, my label of wrong Christian It was basically calling anyone who didn't see the way I did as unclean. Anyone whose life didn't look like mine was unclean. Who are we calling unclean that God has made clean? Now, depending on the translation that you read this passage in, It may say several different things. It may say common, unholy, profane, or unclean. Do not call common. Do not call unholy. Do not call unclean. You see, and he, those different words are used because the opposite of holy is not really unholy. The opposite of holy is common, right? There were um, utensils used Um, by the priest, and those were holy utensils, and the the utensils that people used were common. It's not that they were defiled, it's just that they were common. In the Old Testament, God tells Joshua, when Joshua is out standing before Jericho, entered the promised land, and God tells Joshua to take off your sandals, for where you are standing is holy ground. Now that is not because Joshua's sandals were dirty, that's not because his sandals were defiled. God said that because God had taken Jericho and set it apart for his purposes, and he had taken Joshua and set him apart for his purposes. Do you understand that? Now, as we go on and we look in 1 Peter, 1 Peter says, um, to be holy for God is holy. Now, we can't be holy on our own, right? And so basically what that means is that when God looks on us, well, I can't possibly fathom this. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And so we are made holy by the blood that was shed and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we are then made holy and set apart for God's purposes. 
And then when we continue on in 1 Peter, it says that Christ suffered once and for all. Once his blood was shed, once he was resurrected for all. That he died the righteous for the unrighteous, you and me. And so what that means for us is that anytime we call someone common, anytime we look upon a fellow believer in Christ and call them unclean, we are minimizing and, and basically completely ignoring all of the work that Jesus did on the cross. If we want holiness and righteousness for ourselves, we must understand it belongs to everybody who believes that all who call upon his name are made clean and holy. What God has called clean, do not call common. Now, Let's imagine a scenario. Let's imagine that um, when God called on Peter to go to visit Cornelius, Peter, Peter felt like he didn't have to go. You see, so many scholars identify this time, um, the time when Peter goes and tells Cornelius about the Messiah, as the launch of the global church. Now, for you and me, we can look two blocks away or down the street, and we will see there are churches all around. But for them to imagine a church in Caesarea, that was unheard of. They might believe, be believers in Christ, but they can't be right Christians like me. God, you, you want me to, to start a church in Tehran, Iran? There's a church in, in North Korea, God? God, you want me to go to cross the street? God, did you see their Halloween decorations? <laughs> you see, had Peter decided not to go, the gospel would have been hindered. Jody asked us, are you in or are you out? Now, Yes, God's will would have still been accomplished. God, God's will will always be accomplished whether or not we choose to be involved. He is God. But had Peter called them unclean, had Peter not gone, what would have happened? I don't know. I kind of don't want to think about it because I kind of like the fact that most of us who are in this room as Gentiles get to worship together. Is there someone or a group that you might be calling unclean? Maybe a woman who was divorced five times. Maybe that lady, that prostitute who stands outside that business downtown. You see her at the dart station. Or a disabled person that you see. I mean, they're not necessarily calling them unclean, but, but it, I just, I don't feel like I can relate, and, and I, I don't know how to start a conversation, how to talk to them. And You know, those are the people that Jesus sought after. The woman at the well. 
Rahab the prostitute? The woman who had been hemorrhaging and bleeding her entire life? I bet she felt unclean. Now, to be clear and to be very clear, I am not asking you to excuse behavior that is obvious sin. Because as Christians, we are called to be holy. And the holiness of God is such that every inch of us, every inch, especially our hearts, come into alignment, into sanctification of always growing to be like Jesus. But if we feel like we possibly need to defend Jesus or his, his righteousness by not associating with wrong Christian, then we don't know Jesus at all. He, Jesus isn't, he's not backed into a corner like hastily flipping through scripture looking for a defense. He doesn't need us to defend his righteousness. No, he is looking at you and me, asking us to defend him less and to know him more. And to know him is to love him, and to love him is to love his creation. Christina Cleveland, um, she went on to talk about what it's like to defend Jesus. Let me read uh, this to you. She said, there I was, convinced that I was defending Jesus by condemning wrong Christian, when I saw that Jesus was beckoning both right Christian and wrong Christian and inviting all of us, all of us, to know more of his heart. As I read through the Gospels, I noticed that he had a habit of connecting with everybody. Conservative theologians, liberal theologians, prostitutes, divorcees, children, politicians, people who party hard, military servicemen, women, lepers, ethnic minorities, celebrities, you name it. He was pretty serious about connecting in spite of natural and ideological differences. And it doesn't end in the Gospels. He repeatedly disregards my right Christian and wrong Christian labels and continues to beckon me, even though I still tend to cling to such earthly distinctions. He is relentless. And rather using his power to distance himself from us, Jesus uses it to approach us. He follows his own commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, often to his detriment, I might add, by pursuing us with great tenacity in spite of our differences. He jumps a lot of hurdles to reach us. So are we putting up hurdles? Are we knocking them down, ladies? Are we deciding who is right Christian and wrong Christian? Is that our blind spot? You know, we often don't know our blind spots because we don't have people exposing them. You know, by listening to other voices, by getting to know um, other perspectives and people who are different than us, then we can expose our blind spots and then we can begin, we can begin to see with God's eyes and he doesn't have blind spots. Remember what Sissy told us earlier in the semester Proximity shatters our assumptions. Who is in your proximity? You know, I love being in this room every week. And one of the main reasons is because in this room, we have women of all ages, of all backgrounds, of different cultures, 
of different experiences, different walks with Christ. And we are all in this together. Ladies, what we do here in this room, this is gospel work. It is hard work, but it is good work. But when we aren't willing to do the work, when we settle in with our blind spots, when we make decisions and divisions that God has not, we diminish the work and ignore everything that Jesus did on the cross. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty thankful for what he did. Who are we calling unclean that God has called clean? Let me pray for us. Lord, forgive us for when we um, try to do things ourselves with our own righteousness, God, instead of just surrendering to you and asking for your eyes. Open our eyes to the places where there are blind spots or holes, and God, lift our eyes to see um, the people as created in your image and help us to love your creation. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.